Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thank you for being with us. The program tonight is what they would call, or you would call, I would call chock-a-block. So let's get into it. I told you last night that I'd give you a rundown of where I think the cards will fall in this New South Wales election on Saturday. Let me say that this election is like every other recent election, whether it be federally or in WA, South Australia, Victoria or Queensland. Much of the media commentary misses the point and shows a profound lack of understanding of what the voters in Struggle Street are talking about in the 93 seats to be contested. The first thing to say is very significant. For the Labor Party, six of its current members of parliament are not standing. In the lower house, that means Fairfield, with a margin of 16.8%, has a new Labor candidate. Liverpool, with a margin of 17.4%, has a new Labor candidate. And Cabramatta, with a margin of 19.3%, has a new Labor candidate. It won't matter, all those seats will go to Labor. The other three candidates not standing are in the upper house. Two of them, Walt Secord and Adam Searle, have made very significant contributions. In the Liberal Party, if that's what you call it, destroyed by factions, and even within die-hard Liberals, they just shake their heads in disbelief. And I've got to say, my information is that's being borne out in pre-polling, I might add. I've had many calls of significant swings against the Liberals in many booths where pre-polling is taking place. And unless the factional wars in the Liberal Party are addressed and people with merit and confident about nominating, I'm telling you the Liberal Party is headed for political oblivion. No one except Tony Abbott has warned of the direction the party must take to change. I think Abbott knows something. He won 25 seats in two federal elections from the Labor Party. Current factional heavyweights have to be named and removed. It's in response to this factionalised, discoordinated, often hateful structure in the Liberal Party that 14 existing members of parliament will not be contesting on Saturday. Shamefully, three of them are members of the upper house, where Perrottet, without any pre-selection, without any reason, without regard for merit, without even consultation with the grassroots, these three were turfed out. You're not wanted. No regard to merit, on your way, because they aren't women. Matthew Mason Cox, an outstanding president of the upper house. No party should be allowed to get away with this barbaric behaviour. Then the sitting Liberal members for South Coast, Vaucluse, Riverston, Ryde, Parramatta, Davidson, Pittwater, Borker Mills and Wakehurst are all gone. Some, not all of these people, fed up with the system. Others know they're not wanted. Fancy a Liberal Party hardly endowed with talent telling David Elliott there is no place for him in the Parliament. When 14 sitting Liberals are not offering themselves for election on Saturday, it's a metaphor of a party in disarray. For the Nationals, three are not standing. One, Stephen Bromhead, the member for Myall Lake, sadly passed away last Thursday at the age of 66 from mesothelioma. He had early announced he wouldn't be contesting because He'd learnt of the diagnosis which took his life last week. Belinda Pavey won't be standing. You see, the coalition talk about women and the absence of women. Well, I had a chance to make Pavey the National Party leader and instead chose this dope tool. And he is a dope. 
Mark my words, Melinda Pavey will enter the federal parliament and she'll be a standout candidate. All of this, including the Liberal John Sedoti, disgracefully treated by ICAC and therefore vacating Dremoyne creates a malodorous environment. Though the margin there of 13.6 in Dremoyne should keep it in the Liberal Party. Then of course, Jamie Parker, the Greens member for Balmain, who's been there since 2011, is going. And with a margin of 10%, that seat could easily go to Labor. Interestingly, so terrified is the Liberal Party of certain defeat in the election that Balmain is one of three seats where the Liberals are preferencing the Greens. Newtown is held by the Greens with a margin of 11%. The Liberals are preferencing the Greens ahead of Labor. Can you believe it? Summerhill, one of the Labor Party's safest seats on 21.6%, is also a seat where the Liberal Party are preferencing the Greens. The hypocrisy of that is breathtaking. Liberal after Liberal stands in the federal and state parliaments, demonising the Greens, but when Labor frightens the tripe out of them, they run to the Greens to help them defeat Labor. It's called ideological bankruptcy. The current state of play in the New South Wales Parliament, 93 seats, is that the Coalition has 46 and Labor have 38. Technically, that means Labor would have to win nine seats to win government. The government is currently in minority with only 46. But in spite of all the rhetoric, it is beyond reality that the Greens would ever, in the Parliament, support the Liberals. So if Newtown stays Green and Balmain will be either Green or Labor, and Ballina stays Green, forget the argy-bargy, that is three seats that would support Labor. So then Minns has to win six. I've indicated to you time and time again that as in life and in sport, you must be judged by the scoreboard. Now admittedly, piloted by Berejiklian, the major infrastructure projects have been transformative with everything from M1 to M8. On the other hand, the coalition have made us pay twice. Start up taxpayers' money, then sell them off, and then we pay exorbitant tolls. And Minns was the first politician to identify that. The Liberals built the light rail, a massive blowout in cost of billions of dollars, and along the way, destroyed so many businesses. I remember, I was in the thick of it, pleading for those businesses. Against that, Berejiklian faced the fire over the brand new Allianz Stadium at Moore Park. You will recall the massive campaign by Labor under Michael Daly and the Sydney Morning Herald and others, and even those purporting to support it, ran for cover. A few of us were left to carry on the fight, with Daly threatening publicly to sack me from the Sydney Cricket Ground Trust. I warned Mr Daly that I thought the electorate would sack him first, and they did. And we have the magnificent stadium that Labor opposed. But what the voter has to understand on Saturday is what I've been arguing for months. Financial management by the Perrottet government has been diabolical. A $27 billion spending spree in the last budget, and now over $40 billion in the run-up to Saturday. I suppose the metaphor of this mismanagement was the announcement that they'd put a flagpole on the bridge for the Aboriginal flag at a cost of $25 million. As I said last night, shame alone led the government to question such spending. But they said it would take four years to stick it up when it only took nine years to build the whole bridge. That says it all, I'm sorry. So if you look at the issues that affect the people, when you're rolling in debt, in education, the standards are far below what we're entitled to expect and not comparable with overseas countries. Parents and students are being dudded, and this has gone on for 12 years. 
Young kids, teenagers leaving school, they don't know geography, history, poetry or literature. You ask them where Gunnedah is, where's Maruya, where's Cape York, they don't have a clue. You've got ferries and river cuts and trams in disarray. It's a government which had armed defence force personnel in the streets during coronavirus. Shameful lockdowns which couldn't be justified on any epidemiological basis and never a piece of paper presented to justify the damage being done to children, denied schooling and businesses, denied doing business. And we'll pay the price of this for years to come. Even today, as I said last night, we have medical apartheid. Unvaccinated people denied employment. I'll come to that later in the program. You've got senior nurses in public hospitals resigning in droves. The number of people walking out of emergency departments has doubled in 12 months. You can't gloss over this stuff. And those responsible can't be given another chance. I mentioned last night about people leaving New South Wales for other states at the highest rate ever because cost of living and housing affordability are driving them away. Minns is saying that New South Wales will continue to hemorrhage talented people to other states until government improves conditions for essential workers and assesses housing supply. But fancy money being thrown everywhere by Perrottet and Keane, and yet there are 5,093 demountable classrooms across the state's public schools. They spent half the election time in Western Sydney, but the Police Association says staffing levels there are a recipe for disaster. Now these failures are everywhere, and yet all sorts of promises are being made to be funded by debt. They enjoy over $11 billion in royalties from coal, but they believe and articulate that coal and gas have to go. Now such people, I am saying, are dangerous to the economic well-being of this state. Remember, I told you last night, bus services on which voters rely, plagued with delays and cancellations. Long queues of frustrated commuters, a shortage of drivers, and last Tuesday morning, every third bus scheduled to arrive at the Lane Cove interchange heading to the city was cancelled. A desperate government is making much of the fact that yesterday the Labor bus ran out of battery, electric buses. No mileage in that, both parties have the same policy. But the big issue is buses. Reports today that the northern beaches are contending with cancelled buses, long queues and stranded schoolchildren. 11% of planned buses bound for the city from the northern beaches never made it onto the road during the morning rush. You see, Perrottet and co are talking about stuff that doesn't relate to the problems the battler is facing. In the electorate of Willoughby, Berejiklian's electorate, which the Liberals will struggle to hold, there's now a pirate bus service. So great is the frustration with public transport in the once blue ribbon seat of Willoughby, a bloke called Ken Wilson has created a pirate bus to ferry commuters on the 12 minute journey to the city because the bus system's rubbish. I mean, this is a consequence of the privatisation of the system. The government's own inquiry last year found that Perrottet's obsession with privatisation had led to worse services. This fellow, Ken Wilson, launched a GoFundMe page in December, which raised enough money to charter its first bus for $420. Commuters don't pay, but donations to a fund help. The commuters are encouraged to contribute. But even a Willoughby councillor was catching the pirate bus. Robert Samuel said, quote, I'm going to Bondi, but not on the 340 like I should, because it's canceled. Look, I'm telling you, these shambles are everywhere. And then you go to the bush and they've forgotten. 
You go to the victims of flood and bushfire and they're still either living in other people's homes or in tents with no suggestion that any of their problems will be relieved. Just a postscript, read Dominic Pirate. On the 9th of November 2016, the current New South, New South Wales Premier posted this on his Facebook. And I quote, it's up there for you to read. Some people seem surprised by Donald Trump's success in the US election. But this result is a victory for people who've been taken for granted by the elites in the political establishment for too long. He wrote, there's a silent majority of forgotten people who feel like the values they hold dear are no longer being represented by the political class. This is Perrottet in 2016. In fact, he wrote, these values and the people who hold them are looked upon with contempt. If you stand for free speech, he said, you're not a bigot. If you question man-made climate change, he wrote, you're not a skeptic. If you support stronger borders, he said, you're not a racist. If you want a plebiscite on same-sex marriage, you're not homophobic. If you love your country, you're not an extremist. He wrote, these are mainstream values that people should be free to articulate without fear of ridicule or persecution by the left. He said, it's time for a new political conversation that reflects the concerns of everyday people. It's time for a conservative spring, unquote. So in 2016, Pirate said, it's time for a new political conversation that reflects the concerns of everyday people. It's time for a conservative spring. Great stuff, outstanding. Precisely what I've been saying. He was then Minister for Finance. Isn't it sad that a person with such instincts has been captured by the left, destroying his political credibility? There are some interesting candidates offering themselves on Saturday. At the centre of their candidature is coronavirus and vaccination. In a so-called free society, it's sadly true that things can't be said without the speaker being cancelled. I've said from day one that the response to coronavirus by government was economically and medically destructive. You only had to look at the level of debt that we've been left with and money thrown out everywhere. Remember, not one piece of paper was made available to justify the dictates of government. The other issue was the intervention by government in the relationship between doctor and patient, notwithstanding unchallenged scientific evidence. For example, in September 2020, 1,700 Belgian doctors and health professionals wrote that if applied rapidly, the therapy of hydroxychloroquine, along with azithromycin and zinc, leads to recovery from coronavirus and often prevents hospitalisation. But you weren't allowed to mention hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin cancelled. In Queensland, where under the orders of Dr. Jeanette Young, a doctor could face jail for administering a treatment recommended by, for administering hydroxychloroquine, a treatment recommended in a peer-reviewed paper published by the Journal of American Medicine. You will recall last year, I interviewed Lord Sumption, the former judge of the Supreme Court in Britain, he talked about the state exercising coercive powers over its citizens during coronavirus on a scale never previously attempted. And tellingly, he said, quote, the ease with which people could be terrorised into surrendering basic freedoms, which are fundamental to your existence, came as a shock to me, Lord Sumption said in March 2022. He argued that in Britain, as in Australia, he had witnessed, quote, the most significant interference in personal freedom in the history of Britain. 
Well, there's an independent candidate for Manly on Saturday. Manly the seat where the Liberal James Griffin, a minister in the Perrottet government, is arguing that, quote, everybody, he said, wants to get rid of coal and gas. I'm saying everybody should get rid of James Griffin. But the independent candidate in Manly is Dr. Philip Altman. He has an amazing backstory, but he's an authority on clinical trials and drug regulatory affairs. He's worked in senior managerial positions for several multinational companies, including Merrill Dow. He has a comprehensive working knowledge of international pharmaceutical standards and guidelines. He's a graduate of Sydney University with an honours degree in pharmacy, a master of science and a doctor of philosophy, focusing on drug development, pharmacology and pharmaceutical chemistry. He's been approached by manly voters to run because he said, he wanted to save lives urgently. Dr. Philip Altman joins me. Uh, Philip, thank you for your time. Explain your motivation about wanting to save lives. Well, the public uh, has been given very, very little information about COVID and the vaccines. Uh, precious little information. And even the information that they've been given uh, has been wrong almost every single time. And the level of censorship that's been operating, uh, we've never seen that before. So I've been working on COVID and looking at the safety of the vaccines for over two years now. And uh, uh, I know a lot about it and I'm trying to do my best to spread information uh, so that people mm. can be fully informed yeah, about quite. the vaccines. See, I mean, we were given no information. I constantly asked for a slip of paper that could justify what we were doing. Lockdowns, I mean, we did have, didn't we? We had the Defence Department with guns in the yeah. street. All those people in Western Sydney, where Perrottet and everyone have been the last six weeks, oh, we're going to look after Western Sydney. They put people out of business. They couldn't get kids to go to school. You say that politicians are doing an abysmal job failing us spectacularly, your words, across all aspects of society, and people of all ages are dying due to their ineptitude. Now, yeah. is this happening and why is it happening? All right. We know a lot more about these vaccines than we knew in the beginning. In the beginning, we knew very little about the vaccines. And I was very skeptical because a vaccine usually takes about 10 years to develop and determine its safety and efficacy. If you're gonna do it properly, these were developed in 10 months. You cannot, you cannot do what you need to do to research and develop a vaccine, especially a new generation of vaccine, a gene-based vaccine, and then say, with the limited data that the government had, that it's safe and efficacious. They could not say that. Mm. And now there's a problem. Mm. The problem is excess deaths, which yes, is occurring. I, mean, I just want to say, world. see, this man has done all this, but no one listens to these people. I mean, Dr. Altman, you're focusing on what you just said, these COVID vaccines, and you say your scholarship has led you to be concerned, and I read everything that you've said about, quote, the safety and efficacy of these therapeutics. But we've been told to vax ourselves up. I mean, I'm vaccinated and get the boosters and they say there's more of this stuff coming. Uh, are people at risk from the vaccination? 
Absolutely. You only have to look at the data. The latest data, in, in fact, New South Wales, the hospital system in New South Wales, collected some of the best hospital statistics. And up until the 31st of December uh, 2022, just a couple months ago, it showed very clearly that those people who were the, the most highly vaccinated and boosted populated the intensive care units. There was yeah. hardly anyone See, in hospital who was unvaccinated. Yeah, I mean, th this is the point. It's, it's a bit about AUKUS and everything, climate change and everything. You can't get debate on these things. We have to hear all these arguments. Now, you are saying, and that's why I'm speaking to you, that's why I think you're an excellent candidate. You're saying the government has not provided the public with good advice and mm -hmm. that, quote, all the advice on these COVID vaccines has now been found to be incorrect. Now, all yeah. the advice, you're saying all the advice. All now, the is that advice. an overstatement or no, is it all it's the not advice? an understatement. If you, if you look at what they've told us, the vaccines, they said, prevented infection and transmission. That's been proven to be false. The PCR tests were diagnostic for disease. That is clearly false. Vaccine mandates were a good idea. That's false. The efficacy of masks. It's just been shown a couple weeks ago that uh, there's been a huge uh, literature review of the efficacy of uh, cloth, paper masks, and N95 masks. And it, it came to the conclusion yes. that masks do not work. See, yet uh, yet what, the government won't, it, is silent on this see, issue. See, what I'm saying is that, that, that Dr. Altman's views need to be heard. In this country, we need debate. Here is a man saying, very, very well credentialed. You heard me read that out. Honours degrees, doctor of everything imaginable. He says these vaccines are not safe. And his point, I quote his words, now, you, now we need a debate about this, have been associated with the highest incidence of death and serious adverse events than any other drug in the history yeah. of the pharmaceutical industry, yeah. unquote. Yeah. Now, Dr. Altman, it's a serious comment to mate. Do you believe if you were put in a public place, a public debate, you could substantiate that argument? 100%. I have said that in a number of forums. I've said it in print, and no one has challenged me. No one. In fact, there, there is no one in either federal politics or state politics that knows a fraction of what I know about the pharmacology of these things. And there's been no debate. So you, elected, you, say, you, you say you can support all you say with verifiable evidence. And you also say, which is correct. I mean, they just all nod their heads. Yeah, yeah, yes, he said, there's nobody in either state or federal politics at the moment who has my level of experience and knowledge who can properly assess the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. But doctor, why have premiers and the federal government now gone silent on all of this, even though people are still contracting coronavirus. They're yeah. not bellowing all these warnings that existed before, get vaccinated, whatever. Why have they gone silent? They have gone silent and they can see what's happening. The excess deaths around the world are significant. When, mm. when I talk about excess so just deaths- So explain, just explain excess okay. deaths. It's a phrase that's used all the time. Okay, so, uh, in any one week or month or year, the uh, governments, in our case, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, keeps very accurate statistics 
of, of people who are dying, the numbers and what they die from. And that doesn't vary much from year to year. You can have a bad influenza season and it can tick up a little bit. But, and they usually look back five years before and compare the current year to uh, five years before this current year. Now, before the vaccines were introduced, the excess death rate was fairly steady, right? Even in 2020, when the virus was most virulent and we did not have vaccines, the mm. excess death rate was, right. in Australia, usually yeah. about 450 people per day die. What I but, but after the vaccines were introduced, mm. it shot up and it's done so that in 2021 and 2022, and it has not stopped. Well, I'll have a look at that in a moment, but you see, people have lost their jobs due to vaccine mandates. Should they be compensated? Absolutely, absolutely. There was no scientific basis at all. We all know this now. Everyone knows this, that if, if the vaccines do not prevent transmission, and everyone accepts that, in fact, the US FDA said that in a press conference in December 2020. I use that in one of my slides when I make presentations. I used that slide last night in DY when I presented to uh, a group of about 150 people and I invited mm -hmm. people from all parties see, to come and debate yeah. me. You see, I, I've got this man on here tonight because these views are not allowed. I bet he's not appeared on any other media platform. No. They don't want to hear these views. No. We just cancelled. No. Uh, can I say to you, Dr. Altman, the former federal health minister, Greg Hunt, wrote to the One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts on July 27, 2021, and said, quote, it remains open for doctors to prescribe existing medicines off-label based on their own clinical judgment. Yes. Unquote. But I've that's not true, is it? I've that's seen that true. letter. I've seen that letter. I have a copy of that letter. That That's is not true. Not, that is not true. That is not true. Doctors I mean, if you are not able to do that. Mention and I'll look at this later on, or hydroxychloroquine, you were cancelled. Exactly. And if doctors prescribed them in Queensland, they could be jailed. They could be jailed. Hasn't ivermectin in combination with zinc and doxycycline been shown to be effective in relation to coronavirus management? Absolutely. There's over 95 trials. Uh, not all of them were uh, huge randomized controlled trials, which is the benchmark, but about 30 of them were excellent trials and they were all tending in the same direction. And when you're a scientist, you look, you, you stand back and you look at the broad sweep of data and you look at the trends. And I tell you what, there's no doubt about ivermectin. Mm, see, I, I, I repeat what I've said. Why haven't we heard these views? This man's been cancelled, not allowed to say that stuff. This is just appalling development in Australian society. Just before you go, Doc, what is your final comment about those who were cancelled, banned, demonised for mentioning ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? This is a travesty of justice. It, it re I, I, it, it's turned my world upside down. This is the first time in my whole career, and I've been in this business my whole lifetime, and I, I tell you what, um, I've never seen anything like this when you can take a, a safe and efficacious drug and you can effectively ban its prescribing off-label. 
most drugs are used off-label in some just, way, just, shape, or form. I said that was the last question, but this is my last question. Are big pharmaceutical companies running the show? And that's why you don't want the cheap stuff, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Sure, there's, there's no money in ivermectin, so it has to be crushed. But it was also crushed to make way for the vaccine mm. under the legislation mm. in the US. They couldn't mm. approve these uh, experimental vaccines under the emergency use authorization if there was an effective treatment that was available. So they had to declare that ivermectin was not effective. There you are, there you are. Well now, good luck on Saturday in the seat of Manly. You've heard the Thank man, you. you see. These people have to be heard. Wouldn't it be good to have someone like this in the parliament, Dr. Philip Altman, an independent, but as with nuclear submarines, we need comprehensive debate on these things and politicians who got it all wrong and presided over suffering rather than cure should be politically punished. You'll get your chance on Saturday. Dr. Philip Altman, thank you for your time and thank good you. luck. An independent candidate for Saturday, on Saturday for Manly. Remember, it's optional, preferential. So you can just vote one Philip Altman if you like. That's all you have to do. Well, ugly protest last night in relation to Mark Latham speaking at St. Michael's Church in Belfield. That's in between Strathfield and Campsie in Sydney. It's in the federal seat of Watson, held by Tony Burke, and in the seat of Strathfield, held for Labor by Jason Yatsen Lee. Now, these were apparently transgender protesters. Mark Latham was a guest speaker talking about what are the real issues in this election, school education, parental rights, and of course, protecting non-government schools from what he calls alphabet activism. Now, I'm certain Mark Latham, I've known him for years, he's not opposed to transgender people. Indeed, we're all supportive, I would have thought, what he's concerned about is teaching in schools young people at a very early age that a boy can be a girl or a girl can be a boy. Mark Latham is saying these are not issues for the classroom, and he's right. Now, apparently while he was speaking, there were violent protests outside the church, which goes to the issue, too, of freedom of speech. Sadly, we've reached the stage today in Australia where people are not allowed to say what they believe. So they're cancelled. They're intimidated. They're threatened. Tell me, I know all about it. Well, that happened last night. Are we becoming a nation where only one view is tolerated? Paul Keating disagrees with aspects of AUKUS. And he's vilified and condemned, and all he's saying is there needs to be debate. Now, you can't have protesters cancelling Mark Latham's right to speak and his democratic right as an election candidate. Mark Latham is right. No one should take the law into their own hands and violence at political events is wrong. As Mark Latham said, we should sort out our differences peacefully at the ballot box as we're doing in New South Wales this Saturday. Any other approach is unacceptable and counterproductive in a democracy. He further said, I didn't organise the event, nor did my party. I was invited along with three other speakers to talk at a pre-election public meeting at the St Michael's Belfield Catholic Church. No different, he said, from several other meetings on religious and parental rights this year. The role of the New South Wales Police, now this is interesting, he said should be to protect and defend the rights of election candidates to participate freely in public meetings. Mark Latham said, a vital democratic right. He said, it's not the role of the police to join the cancel culture movement. Then he said this, Mark Latham, you've got it on your screen. This is why I was surprised 
the police commander said, I should not speak, unquote. Disturbingly, Mark has said, the police commander, quote, then said he would ensure that I left the premises safely, but I never saw him or his colleagues again. Mark Latham said, I spoke to a large engaged meeting in the church hall and played a role in ensuring everyone dispersed peacefully. peacefully. Then I saw myself out and I went home with that incident. Unquote. Well, reports suggest that two people were charged by police after the confrontation and the protesters were LGBTQ. I honestly don't know what these people are on about. The overwhelming bulk of Australians accept gender diversity. And if there are people who are homophobic, ignore them, turn away knowing that the bulk of Australians don't care so long as these gender preferences aren't foisted on others, including the young. Mark Latham's concerned about what's being taught in the classroom, and that is a legitimate concern. The One Nation Party is offering at this election real grassroots solutions. I would sum up their campaign with the three E's and make no mistake, they've got good candidates. You're going to meet one in a minute. Economy, electricity, we'll call that energy, and education. Now, Tanya Mihalik has defected from the Labor Party, but this is a highly intelligent woman, well-credentialed, a mother, and thankfully, the thing I love about her, she's outspoken. She's not going to be intimidated or silenced. Now, she's number two on the Upper House One Nation ticket. I make no apologies for advocating that people should vote One Nation in the Upper House to give them the numbers to stop whatever policy rot goes on in the lower house and she joins me. Tanya, thank you for your time. It's Just a, a brief comment on the, on the protesters. I mean, people are misguided. I mean, we know there's gender diversity, don't we? People have different sexual preferences, mm. but the bulk of Australians are comfortable with that, aren't they? Oh, of course. Um, I, I've got to say, Alan, look, Mark's made it very clear. We don't condone violence. You know, we, we clearly condemn violence. Uh, and it was very unfortunate what ended up occurring last night. But let's also be clear that this is a very small local suburban church, okay, uh, in a tiny little street, uh, a very multicultural, multi-faith community there in Belfield. I don't know why anybody would want to come down and protest down there. Uh, all the church was doing, as have many churches um, throughout this campaign, they've invited a, a host of different political uh, speakers to turn up and, and just debate. It was a quiet debate. Uh, Mark, amongst other speakers, was invited just to address, I think the majority of people were actually older women that were in the room. Uh, they just wanted some advice and some bit of information about parental rights, education, um, religion. They wanted to have a little bit of extra information uh, on what's not being discussed in the mainstream media, mm. but some discussion uh, clearly about faith, mm. religious freedom, a whole host of issues in education and mm. so forth was discussed. But it was very um, peaceful. And I think it's really disturbing that um, people decided to organise the um, a protest against mm. that. It's not the Parliament House. It's not a council building. It's not a public park. It's not the CBD or indeed Oxford Street. It's suburban Belfield, a, mm. a little small church. And yeah. it doesn't surprise me that parishioners and people have become very upset. Uh, and it's just unnecessary. But see, you and Mark Latham, it's very... I love what... One Nation is about on this stuff because it's, in simple language, you're basically saying this stuff doesn't belong in the classroom. I mm. mean, you're saying, and I've been saying it, and Mark's been saying it, that after 12 years of Liberal government, 
All they've offered in education is to throw more money at the problem and the standards have slipped and this stuff's crept into the teaching and the curriculum. What mm. can be done about it? Well, we're just saying that teachers should be teachers. They're not there to be politicians, Alan. Uh, if teachers want to be politicians, uh, then they can nominate like I have or, or, or as Mark has in the general election. Uh, kids should uh, expect that when they, and parents should expect that when they send their children to school, that they're taught the fundamentals of education, whether that's maths, literature, science, history. We want kids to learn the fundamentals of education at school. Absolutely. Uh, we know that they're not being taught that. We know that there's so much left-wing indoctrination now at schools. And, and I'm seeing a lot of my friends, Alan, actually pull their kids out of school. They're homeschooling their kids. And that shouldn't be happening. It's happening no. because parents well, feel alienated by the education system. But you see, they, they keep telling us, I mean, uh, Dominic Perrottet and the education minister, oh, Sarah, poor thing. I mean, they know nothing about what's going on in the classroom. I've been talking about this for ages and teachers are intimidated. Women, female teachers are intimidated and teachers are leaving the profession. Tanya, just have a look. I mean, this is mm. not isolated, this stuff. Have a look at this video. This is what Mark and I and Tanya and One Nation have been on about. It's inconceivable to people of my vintage that this goes on in the classroom, but it does. I mean, I, I've mentioned before, before I show you this video, I spoke to a young lady a couple of years ago. It was her first day as a teacher at the high school. I won't tell you which high school, but I did tell the government at the time what the high school was. And as she walked in, no one assisted her. She walked in, there were two big blokes about to throw suitcases at one another. So she said, oh, excuse me, could you keep the noise down? They turned straight, wheeled straight at her and said, why don't you F off? This is mm, a female terrible. teacher. Intimidated. Now, basically, I reckon she should have called the police. Mm. Teachers are being physically assaulted and young people are saying, well, why would I be a teacher? Just have a look at this. This is at Maitland Grossman High School, a government-funded co-ed school. This is education under the current government. Now, all those beeps you heard were foul language, students and teacher. Tanya Mihalik, what needs to be done? Well, One Nation policy is that we want to see kids that have behavioural issues actually be in a separate school. Uh, years ago that was the case, but over time we're seeing kids with all sorts of behavioural issues being thrown in the mix with, with ordinary kids. And in the end, nobody learns anything in the class when you've got kids misbehaving like this. I mean, this is terrible sorts of behaviour. Uh, Who would want to go to school in an environment like that? Neither the, neither the kids nor the teachers. So, you know, this is the problem is the Department of Education is not focused on these sorts of issues at all. Uh, they're focused on nonsense. Uh, you know, left-wing indoctrination, teaching gender fluidity, all sorts of mm. nonsense is mm. the priorities for... Mm. Um, 
for the Department of Education rather than actually prioritising these sorts of issues. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, if we translate to the economy, I mean, Dominic Perrottet says, think of your kids. Now, Perrottet's thrown money at everything, debt piled on debt. Mm. What's that doing to our kids? I mean, how do you address this? Mark Latham, you and Mark Latham, the One Nation Party have said this can't go on. In fact, Mark Latham did a magnificent speech in the parliament on the ra in relation to that last budget. But this has got to be addressed, surely. Yeah, well, the latest announcements from Perrottet to the Super for Kids what it in, ends up meaning, Alan, is that in one hand you're handing $400 to, to a child you know, and on the other you're, you're giving them a $17,000 debt. <laughs> you're, you're riddling the, uh, the next generation and the future generations of our country with, with enormous debt. I don't know if that's a gift. I think it's actually a burden. Uh, and it's surprising that it's coming from a Liberal government. Uh, it's, it's not a gift at all. It's a, it's a huge burden, and, and the type of debt is just but, you escalating. Know, I, 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 Tanya, as you know, I've been a Liberal supporter all my life. Mm. Uh, I can't cop a budget. I can't advocate voting for this government. I think it needs to be thrown out, and I think it needs to be trashed at the election, and the Liberal Party might start again. I can't cop a budget which increases expenditure by 26.5% and mm. then continues in the election campaign throwing billions of dollars at everything. I mean, we've got to promote less of a reliance on government, which is what Mark Latham is saying. I mean, education, economy, what about energy? The Liberals are no different from Labor. They want to demonise coal and gas. Mm. How do you keep the lights on, Tanya Mihalik? Well, you're right. They are demonising coal, gas, uranium, you name it. We're, we're a state that's so rich with natural resources, and yet we won't tap into these resources at all. Uh, the race to renewables, 100% renewables, is just the race to the bottom. And, and in the end, it'll be people that will suffer, um, cost of living pressure, the costs are just astronomical when it comes to energy pricing, and it's unnecessary given how rich we are with resources in, in New South Wales. And what I think people are most concerned about is you have a Liberal government that should be socially and economically, particularly economically mm. conservative, mm. and they're not. Uh, they should be supporting these industries, our natural resources industries, and they're not. Uh, Matt Keane and his agenda is really destroying the Liberal Party, and that's the message I'm getting out there. I was at yeah. his polling place today. I was at Hornsby today, Alan, where people were quietly telling me so, that they were tired of the Liberal Party. So what, what are you saying to voters on Saturday in a way that they can understand? I, I've been saying that this state's in a parlous position. Intelligent people like you, Mark Latham, Amit Batish, Colin Grigg, hmm. give them the vote in the upper house and a lot of this nonsense will be prevented. What are you saying to the voters that are watching you now? Well, we hope to be the balance of power, Alan. We hope to be the voice of reason. We hope to be the advocates of common sense policies. Uh, we don't, we think the Liberal Party have completely failed this state. It's not the Labor Party that are going to win this Saturday. It's the Liberal Party that's going to lose. They've let the people down. They have vacated the social and economic conservative space in New South Wales. And uh, they will potentially, they'll lose this Saturday. There's no doubt about that. They are handing um, government over to uh, a Labor and Greens you know, minority government. And that's what will end up happening, I think, on Saturday to the great detriment to the people of New South Wales. And the message that One Nation is saying is give us a vote in the upper house because we want to be the voice of reason for the people of New South Wales. We will be. Uh, we will keep, uh, we will watch what they're doing in that low, lower chamber and we will actually be a proper opposition to that sort of madness. Uh, at the moment, I'm concerned the Liberal Party is just no different 
from the Absolutely. Labor and Greens. Absolutely. Well, there you are. There you are. You can see it there. I am saying these are the people we've got to get into the upper house so that you worry about all these stupid policies. Well, they will block them. And that's what we need. It's the One Nation, Mark Latham, One Nation, Tanya Mihalik and the team in the upper house. Tanya, thank you for your time and good luck on Saturday. Pleasure. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Tanya Mihalik. I might add, mother of three, do you mind? And I think one of them's 18. Tell you what, she's on good tablets. Tanya Mihalik. Well, now look, having said all that, the issue which will undeniably cost both major parties votes on Saturday is energy policy. You wait and see what happens in Hornsby to Matt Keane talking all this rubbish about we're going to be, you know, 75% free of carbon dioxide by whenever. Albanese might be prime minister, but 67% of Australians didn't want him. Why? For the coalition at the federal election was no better. 65% didn't want them, why? And here we are with the New South Wales election, mimicking this rubbish that coal and gas must go. That fool environment minister in Manly, who said on March 6th, I quote, Everybody wants to shut the coal-fired power stations down as quickly as possible. Who is everybody? Perrottet beside him nodded his head in agreement. Oh, like Morrison, Perrottet has a plan. Where did that plan get the federal Liberals? These people can't be trusted with our future. It's as simple as that. And the sooner we wake up to the fact that human beings can't regulate the climate, and the sooner we accept what other countries have woken up to, that dependable coal-fired power is essential for us to live and progress. Well, Dr. Alan Moran is one of Australia's best-known commentators on the energy industry. Over the past 10 years, he's published more than 30 major papers on the subject. Of course, government don't listen to him. He's written chapters on Australia in five global compendiums on energy. He's given presentations at three previous international conferences on climate change, and he's recently written a splendid piece titled, quote, Climate Change, Short on Proof, Drowning in Nonsense. Dr. Alan Moran joins me. Alan, thank you for your time. Where are we heading? I mean, what is paraded as nationalism in the national interest is nothing but socialism and alarmism. Well, it certainly is. And we're not heading, we're certainly not heading into lower emissions, even if that was a, a meaningful goal, uh, because the rest of the world will not reduce their emissions, at least the rest of the world, which means the, the developing world, uh, which has got the most emissions right now. And they're not doing it because they're perverse or anything else. They're, they're, they're basically not eschewing coal, coal uh, oil and gas because these are the cheapest forms of power and they need cheap power in order to raise their living standards. We need cheap power in order to maintain our, our competitiveness in industries. We're losing all our our, uh, our value industries and manufacturing, basically, because our power, which was once and, and should be the cheapest in the world, is now right up there amongst the highest. Who in government, anyone in government, talks to you? Nobody. Nobody, see? Nobody, Nobody. So is that problem. Nobody. These people are know-alls, know-alls, and they're frightened of speaking to people like Dr Moran because it doesn't suit their agenda. Haven't we seen a decade, Alan, where the projected increase in overall global temperatures hasn't occurred? It's not occurred. Uh, and we've, for, for at least 10 years, there's been no increase. And, of course, the levels of CO2 are continuing to rise. But in spite of that, there's been no increase. There may well be an association of CO2 and, and uh, 
and temperatures over some long term. But it's a very small association, and the levels of CO2 are by no means alarming. If there is a temperature increase, it's trivial and is not being measured at the present time. It's no wonder, in fact, that they've now they've now morphed the language from global warming to to climate change. I was just about to ask to you that. I was just about to ask you that, and to our viewers, you heard me right. just said then, Dr. Moran. They've now changed the language, so we're no longer preventing global warming. We're preventing climate change, and then, of course, they argue this is due to human-induced carbon dioxide. Please tell me, Dr. Moran, if carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere, surely only a fool would argue it's affecting the climate. Not only would, would, could you not argue it, but you just look at, look at the data. Look at, you know, what they say. Okay, maybe hurricanes have gone up. Well, they've not. They're dead flat. There's been no change in hurricanes. They say, okay, well, uh, we're going to have droughts. Uh, we look at the rainfall over Australia for the last century, it's dead flat. It goes up and down a lot, it's very volatile, but the trend line is dead flat. Uh, they say, oh, well, look, in fact, minister, the, the energy minister said so only last week, we're going to have more and more bushfires. It's gonna, you're not seeing anything yet. Well, bushfire seasons in 1974-5 and in many, many earlier eras were miles, miles higher than they were last year. Absolutely. Uh, bushfires are really a, a symptom of, of people lighting them not, and, and, and not clearing the, clearing the detritus absolutely. on the forest floor. So, absolutely. So let me ask this. What does someone like the Prime Minister of Australia mean when he says that reducing Australia's contribution to global, global climate change, is his words, was a long-term solution, and the government is pursuing that in response to incredibly and increasingly frequent flooding. I mean, Albanese is saying, if we don't take action, quote, these extreme weather events would be more often and more intense. Surely, without mis mixing with language, this is sheer ignorance. It's sheer ignorance. It's totally incorrect. The levels of flooding, the levels of rainfall, the levels of whatever are, are not changed in any statistical sense over the past century. I'll tell you what he does mean. He means he's gone to do the, the, the political research and they've got the focus groups and he said this. So he's responding to the focus group. He hasn't got a clue in terms of, of the science and he doesn't want to know the science or in terms of the, the actual metrics of, of the levels of, of rainfall or bushfires or whatever else. These are totally irrelevant to him. All he needs to do is try to ex ex explain to people and feed people the, the lies that they've been fed uh, by various people oh, over no. the, the last oh, dozen no. years. It's frightening. It is frightening. And kids are getting this in class and everywhere. I mean, even the International Panel on Climate Change, and I am paraphrasing a bit, not in their words, but they have acknowledged that as the climate is changing, which it always will, we're arguing about what causes this, and it's not carbon dioxide. They've acknowledged floods are less frequent, haven't they, and less severe on droughts. Well, I mean, there's any amount of data that we've had droughts since our inception as a nation, but since 1900, droughts of all lengths have become less frequent and less widespread. Isn't this what the evidence says? The evidence says that, yeah, in fact, the actual number, the, the number of droughts and the amount of rainfall have both declined slightly, but basically they've not changed. I mean, you, you could say they've gone up and down. You look at a long-term trend, around that long-term trend, there's a lot of volatility up and down. There is no trend uh, to increase droughts Absolutely. or no trend Absolutely. to increase rainfall levels. 
no trend to increase flooding. And, you know, one of the, the tokenistic things is the Great Barrier Reef. They say, oh, well, it's going to destroy the Great Barrier Reef. We're going to pour billions of dollars into saving it. Well, you look at the Great Barrier Reef, it's more healthy now, that it's bigger now Absolutely. than it's been in any of the recorded uh, levels that we've had over the last 10, 10 or 15 uh, years. Absolutely. But you've got this, and you would have noted it, I think it's this week, isn't it, the International Panel on Climate Change. The scientists have delivered yep. what they're calling a final warning on what they call the climate crisis. <laughs> and they say the world is being pushed to the brink of irrevocable damage. I mean, seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Moran, shouldn't this outfit be wound up? We've had this alarmism for decades. Well, it should be wound up. But of course, that is not the scientists saying that. If you read the scientists, there's 3,000 pages of very dense uh, caveats and blah, blah, blah. This is the, the, the summary for policymakers, which is made by a bunch of uh, bureaucrats or uh, political, politicized bureaucrats, appointed bureaucrats, who are basically uh, massaging the words which the scientists mm. have made, which are be mm. really very neutral, but, saying, oh, well, it could be going up, it might not be, and whatever. They say it is going up and it's all due to you. I know, uh, you've got I to do know. About but, it. But, but let's be That's serious. Good. I mean, let's be serious. There'll be headlines everywhere because... The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. Now, I don't know what this bloke's read and I don't know what his agenda is, but these are his words about this latest report. This report, this is the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. There is on your screen. This report is a clarion call to massively fast track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Dr. Moran, this is the new religion. How do you stop it? I don't know. I, I, it's been coming for 10 years, 20 years, more. Uh, and how you stop it in the end is, is, is I, and the only way is by continuing to say, here are the facts, and also to say, your solution to stopping this is we stop burning coal, we stop burning uh, 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 oil and gas, uh, and we reduce our living standards. Well, in the end, that will happen. People's living standards, we can see that in, in, in happening now with increased energy prices, and we're going to see more of that. At, at some stage, I you've know. got to hope that people are going to say, it's enough is enough. It's a very disturbing prospect. Enough. Very disturbing. I, it, it, I don't get depressed about anything. But I think this ignorance depresses me. I mean, you've said the science does exist that the projected global increase in temperatures hasn't occurred. So now they change direction. They want to have you believe that tropical storms and hurricanes cause considerable damage and loss of life. And they do. But aren't I right, Dr. Moran, in saying the science shows that claims of increased incidence and severity lack evidence? There's no evidence for it indeed. And the costs, I mean, in terms of like climate deaths is something you might say, well, that's important. Uh, look at the climate deaths in proportion to the world population. It's now 4% of what it was 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Well, we're richer. Yeah. We're richer now. There's none of this climate change stuff going on. There's always climate change, but we're yeah. richer now. We can cope with it. If you look at the damage uh, over the past 30 years uh, per year due to climate events, it's smaller, it's much smaller. Amazing. Damage, death, everything's gone down. Yeah, and this bloke's not an amateur that's talking to us here tonight. This is a man extremely well credentialed, not like the Albanese's and the Keynes and the Bowens. 
He has said losses from extreme weather, these are his words, Dr. Moran, for extreme weather events have tended to decline over the past 30 years, and that climate-related deaths, Dr. Moran's words, are now only 4%, he just made that point, of their level a century ago. But the Prime Minister of Australia says, these extreme weather events will be more often and more intense. Who, I mean, who advises this bloke, Dr. Moran? Who advises him? I guess people who, who, who get him re-elected. I mean, he's, he's just totally abandoned any facts or any real science. And basically he's heard what the words are saying. Okay, if we push these buttons, uh, the people will respond and they'll vote for us. And by the way, we've got to uh, circumnavigate the Greens who are stealing oh. votes from us in various areas, oh. uh, in the city yeah. areas. We've got to out, outflank them. Oh. But just, just finally, I mean, as you say, this has now seen a change in economic management. You wipe out coal and gas and talk about getting, you know, 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 and having 22,000 solar panels on the roof every day and away you go. This change in economic management, we already see electricity prices go up, energy shortages are going to occur. This is destroying the economic fabric of the nation. I called it way back a national economic suicide note. Do you reckon mm -hmm. I'm right or wrong? Yeah, that's right. It's a slow burning and slow acting suicide note, which we're actually seeing before our eyes is happening now. You know, that essentially we start closing down the more and more of these coal power stations and another one's going this month or next month. Uh, we, that means, first of all, we've got to close down our smelting industries. Mm -hmm. These are the backbone of our, of our economy, the backbone of our wealth. So, you know, we, we are going to be immensely poorer as a result. And it's not going to make one iota of a difference in terms of the global emission levels mm. because those smelters just, just migrate to Kazakhstan or China or somewhere else where there, there is cheap energy, energy which, which, is, which, which should, we should be even cheaper at. We can be cheaper at oh, if we so we're an energy We're an energy powerhouse, and that's what's given us our, our, our economic strength. And now we're denying mm -hmm. that which gave us what we enjoy today. Good to talk to you. It can be, I don't get depressed, but it's quite depressing to see the kind of ignorance that prevails. Great to talk to you. We'll talk again, Dr. Alan Moran. Well, before we go, yesterday I spoke about the charging of a distinguished Australian soldier who had completed seven deployments, three to Afghanistan, in under two years. All up approximately 250 missions in two years a remarkable Australian. I've spoken to his wife, who's in a state of great distress. This man gave his life to the service of his country. He has been named, he should not have been named, and I'll come to that in a moment, Oliver Schultz. I argued yesterday that these men, the SAS, are the very best, and they're sent to the most dangerous areas. The Taliban in Afghanistan weren't playing in a sandpit. War is fundamentally about killing or being killed. But now we know what happens, don't we? We send these men into war and they're either killed in combat or metaphorically killed when they come home. Oliver Schultz, a risk to nobody, is in custody. He's in jail, a risk to nobody. The soldier who avoided being injured in combat, now permanently injured at home. I read last night an affidavit filed by Major General Bilton on behalf of the Commonwealth in the Ben Robert Smith VC defamation proceedings. The affidavit was filed in support of an application that all former and current members 
of the special forces. Now, I thought this was already accepted, but he's filing an affidavit. All former and current members of the special forces have their identities protected. Oliver Schultz could have been charged if they wanted to charge him and not named. So what's the agenda here? The Major General Bilton affidavit is publicly available on the Federal Court of Australia website, sworn by him, and sets out why it was considered necessary to protect the identities of current and former members of the Special Forces, including, but not limited to, the safety of those persons and their families. The family of Oliver Schultz has gone to hell and hasn't come back. Other veterans have been treated as criminals, not yet named, without any access to justice. Remember what's called the Yamashita Standard, where, and I quote, the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, even if he or she is unaware of that crime or was aware and actually gave orders to stop it. Ignorance of the actions of his or her subordinates and failed attempts to stop them are not a defence, unquote. So, why are the officers in charge of the Afghanistan operation, the highest ranking officers, why aren't they charged if Oliver Schultz can be charged? But the Brereton report found that the commanders of Australia's Middle East operations, who included the current chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, in charge of Afghanistan operations from 2011 to 2012, Campbell was not accountable, according to Brereton, because in Brereton's words, they didn't have, quote, a sufficient degree of command and control to attract the principles of command responsibility, unquote. Now, hang on. Hang on, Brereton. This is not what the Yamashita standard says. Yamashita was court-martialed for, quote, failing in his duty as commander of the Japanese forces, unquote. But the Brereton report, from which we're now naming and charging and shaming Oliver Schultz, is at pains to exonerate the commanders. Indeed, Campbell, now the chief of the Defence Force, is a former commander, actually apologised to the Afghan victims' families. Campbell's effectively exonerated in the Brereton Report, but he was commander of the Middle East operations known as Task Force 633. Remember, this is the Taliban our men were fighting. If Major General Brereton, the author of the Brereton Report, knew Campbell, who was in command when these alleged offences took place, what weight can be given to Brereton's virtual exoneration of Campbell and repudiation of the Yamashita standard enshrined in the Geneva Convention to which we are a signatory? That, quote, the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, unquote. Major Bilton's sworn affidavit argues that, quote, the identity of personnel are protected from disclosure to the public, unquote. And he makes the point in the affidavit that, quote, combating the Afghan insurgency was a complex, difficult and dangerous mission. The insurgents proved to be an adaptable and ruthless enemy. Their attacks were often carefully planned, unpredictable and brutal, unquote. The affidavit also argues, I quote, special forces, Oliver Schultz was one of them, are also critical to Australia's capacity to operate as a member of coalition forces in ongoing or future operations. He says, if anything were to diminish, this is the affidavit, Australia's capacity to contribute to these multilateral operations, it would prejudice Australia's national security and defence more generally, unquote. If anything were to diminish our capacity, 
Why, when people like Oliver Schultz are named and charged, would any young man or woman want to sign up to the Australian Defence Forces when you're treated like this when you get home? Here's an SAS veteran, identified as being prosecuted with no protection for his family. Charge him if you will, but why is identity be made public? What's worse? No attempt was made by the Commonwealth and or the Department of Defence to protect the identity of Oliver Schultz. On the contrary, Oliver's arrest was leaked to a journalist and published online and on Twitter by that journalist, the ABC's Mark Willisey, prior to Oliver Schultz even having been charged. If this is not a scandal, nothing is. For now, our thoughts are with Oliver Schultz, his wife and family. We respect people who fight for freedom on behalf of us. I will be returning to this appalling issue next week, but that's it for tonight. Thank you for being with me. I hope you've enjoyed the program. You can listen to tonight's program on the podcast. Just go to the podcast app from 6 a.m. tomorrow. I'll be with you next week. May I remind you, by the way, immodestly, that I gave you the tip for the golden slipper last week. Shinzo, you could have got 16 to 1. <laughs> I hope you did. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.